Hello and welcome to the weekly Investor Insights call. Throughout the call, all participants will be in listen-only mode. And just to remind you, this conference call is being recorded. Today, I'm pleased to present Gavin Ralston and Phil Chandler. Please go ahead with your meeting. Thank you very much, Jerry, and welcome to our latest weekly call and podcast. Uh, this is Gavin Ralston. I'm delighted to have with me Phil Chandler, multi-asset portfolio manager. Um, Phil, we were chatting earlier, although you're going to talk about the whole of multi-asset today, uh, your main day-to-day responsibility is for the more conservative strategies we run within multi-asset. Okay, so, so portfolio is where we have a benchmark or a strategic asset allocation or there's a peer group. So portfolio is run versus those. There's a whole range that we have at the moment. It's an area that's been a very growing area in multi-asset at the moment. If you think about it, it's very popular 20, 30 years ago. It's really come full circle. So a range of portfolios on the DB side, uh, DC solutions, um, but also some retail portfolios as well in insurance. Great. So you're well positioned to answer any question that I can throw at you. The same as every multi-asset investor. Indeed. Uh, in terms of the market background, um, both equity and bond markets have continued to move steadily upwards. Um, the rise in equities, at least, evidences the power of the central banks because the news on growth remains weak pretty much in every part of the world. You may have seen that Keith reduced his growth forecast very slightly for 2019 last week. There was also, and this is perhaps some of the uh, answer to why markets are moving, a very weak number for US inflation. The core rate of inflation is now only 2.1%. But the optimism in equities stems from the what's now the consensus view that if the Fed raises interest rates at all this year, it will only be by a quarter of a point. And also uh, the growing signs of resolution of the trade dispute between the US and China. As a result, uh, both US and Eurostox equities are now up 13% year to date. And the Chinese market is now up a massive 24% after another surge on Monday. Uh, when there was further signs of uh, the government moving on stimulus to the economy. As you know, we aim to align our conversations with the multi-asset portfolio managers with the monthly GAC meetings, the Global Asset Allocation Committee. So Phil is in a position to report on the discussions uh, that took place at the meeting last week. So Phil, a month ago, when we had Alistair Baker on the call, the view of the GAC was that you should stay with risk assets for the time being as they grind higher. Is, is this still your view? It is. And I think you covered some of the salient points there. But whilst we have this soft period of growth, central banks have really stepped in. The Fed around the turn of the year, the ECB more recently. And that liquidity uh, booster market is what's driving us higher and giving us opportunity for risk assets to perform. One of the critical things was that muted inflation report from the U.S. last week, because that reduces the risk that the Fed has to act for inflation reasons as opposed to because growth has somehow accelerated. So what we're doing is that whilst we see this opportunity for risk assets to continue to perform, it's a narrow opportunity, we are trying to be selective as to where we take advantage of that opportunity, favoring more carry strategies. So for example, uh, high yield in the US, investment grade corporate bonds in Europe, Italian government bonds, and carry currencies on the FX side. And the logic of that position is that the additional return you can get from those carry assets will not be significantly less than the return you might expect from equities. 
uh, for the next few months. Exactly. So in the absence of a, a strong, unexpected increase in growth, it's hard to see the really cyclical parts of markets working in the short term. Yes. And so those carry strategies where there's a natural yield to them, obviously give you that return, so the returns can be similar. But also we have to remember that growth is weak. The growth is currently below trend around the world. There are clearly some risks to the downside over the next couple of years. And therefore, there's carry strategies which tend to have more defensive properties because you have the continual carry through time as opposed to relying solely on the cyclical uplift. I mean, those carry strategies are better protected against an unexpected downturn. And you, you mentioned um, the, the weakness of growth generally. There must come a point when growth weakness starts to question your confidence in equities in particular. Uh, how close are we to that point? I think it's very difficult to put a specific number on it. One of the things that has been discussed, it was discussed several years ago and it's coming back at the moment, is this idea of whether there's some sort of concept of a stall speed for economies. That when growth drops below a certain level, do things just start to fall apart? Um, I think that clearly in the, you know, we are in a very low growth world, uh, but at the same time we are having supportive actions by central banks, for example, and so it's hard to calibrate the two of those. At the moment, we think that growth is just about strong enough, but if we were to see shocks from here, then we could be changing our opinion. In last week's call, um, Alex Tedder made a very interesting observation. He thought there was a risk of a melt-up in equities because of the liquidity point you've been talking about as central banks become more and more accommodative. Do you think this is a possibility? Well, I think you can say that you're already seeing that to a certain extent. If you think of the way the markets are behaving at the moment, where both equities and bonds have been performing, it shows you just how important that liquidity element has been to markets so far this year. So that, to a certain extent, has already been happening. I guess the question is, to what extent can we have some sort of a really strong liquidity-fueled bubble forming in a sector of the market? I think that's certainly a risk. Um, it's something which we discussed last week. Uh, but we're not at the stage yet where we're calling for it today. And the other point you were making when we were discussing earlier was is that you're not you're not favouring cyclical sectors of equity markets. Correct. And it really, so that's why, as I mentioned earlier, looking for those carry strategies and there's things such as high yield, investment grade, um, Italian government bonds, those higher carry currencies within the FX sphere. We're also thinking about it underneath the surface. So, for example, I mentioned uh, European investment grade, which in some respects seems somewhat strange given the yields are very low there. But at the same time, when we do the analysis looking at corporate bonds around the world, we note that the fundamentals to us look slightly better in Europe compared to the US. Leverage is lower and the credit ratings are slightly higher in Europe compared to the US. So digging underneath the surface, that's why we, we prefer the European side there. I ventured the statement that markets were now pretty much discounting a resolution of the US-China trade dispute. Uh, do you think that's still got the, the potential to come back and bite us if circumstances deteriorate? I think certainly you can say that um, sort of hopes for a continued attempt on the trade side has been partly behind the move we've seen in markets, in addition to the liquidity we've talked about. I think it's hard to gauge exactly how much is priced and to put a percentage on it, but clearly expectations have increased there. So if we were to see a sudden you know, falling apart of those trade talks, then markets would naturally react to it. 
I do think, though, that there is potentially some mileage still to go, though, that you know, when a deal gets done, if it gets done, then we could see a boost to markets from here, partly because of the sentiment impact on, on growth and investment around the world and the way that could have a, a more positive effect for the next year or two. Okay. I mentioned that Keith had reduced his uh, growth forecast for 2019, actually increased them slightly for 2020. Does that change have any impact on your thinking? So, if you look at Keith's forecast, he's been very sort of consistent in terms of the expectation of growth slowing, and that still remains the same. Um, and it's interesting to sort of break down where that growth is coming from, but also think about the impact that it has upon, for example, profits. So the change in the profile really is reflecting the fact that we had a very weak start to this year, or a very weak end to last year, and that brings down the 2019 number. On the flip side, the 2020 number is increased by Keith because you know the Fed's hiking less this year. You don't have that restrictive effect on growth for next year. But ultimately, the expectations are still for very muted growth. So that big picture doesn't change. What it does do is just start changing the probabilities of you know, when we could potentially see you know, a greater downside. The other thing, though, is that we need to think not just about growth, but also about profits. I think it's very easy to focus on the R word. We know that if you ask an economist, and he or she will say that recession is two consecutive quarters of negative growth, and that matters for a statistician, but for markets, what really matters is what's happening to equity prices, to bond prices, and they're driven by things such as corporate profitability and earnings. And the latest numbers uh, from the economics team Whilst they show that growth expectations have picked up slightly for next year, their actual numbers on the profit side are deteriorating. So we're seeing a margin squeeze coming through from higher wages that isn't being passed into higher prices. And whilst margins have been contracting over the last couple of years, in this weak growth environment, it means that top-line revenue growth isn't enough to offset that margin contraction. So they're saying that whilst growth is now looking slightly better for next year, compared to their previous expectations. On the profit side, it's possible that profits could be actually outright falling next year. And, and that's consistent with the views that Alex was expressing last week. And he's concerned about, even in the second half of 2019, because of this cost squeeze, that profits will disappoint market expectations. Um, one of the points that um, Alistair made a month ago was in terms of looking for hedges against your base case um, not being correct. Duration was still an attractive place to be. Now, that's been right in that yields have moved down. We're now at 260 on the US 10-year. Is, is duration still a place to hide? I think so. I think that um, clearly at the moment, growth is the real threat to markets as opposed to the inflation side. And in a growth-driven threat to markets, then government bonds duration helps you. Clearly, the hurdle has risen. If you think about it, when Alistair was talking a month ago, government bond yields were higher than where they are today. And in fact, when we were buying bonds last year, yields were even higher still. So in this environment where the US 10-year is currently at 2.6%, the German 10-year is you know, less than 10 basis points, uh, we're pricing a full cut from the Federal Reserve in the US now by the end of next year, the hurdle for government bonds to work, I think, has risen slightly. And therefore, you need to see a much you know, a, a larger... Uh, downside surprise to get a real move in bond markets than you would have had you know, last year, for example. And, and where are the other places that you think will behave, other assets that will behave defensively? 
So one of the things to say is that within the bond side, we're starting to rotate our positions. But having favored the U.S. Treasury market as a, a very good downside risk protection market, we're in the process of rotating to other areas, either areas where there's sort of greater sort of cyclical protection at the moment, such as Australia, or also markets where we think that the carry is better, such as Germany. I know it seems strange to talk about carry being good in Germany when I've mentioned that bond yields are below 10 basis points, but on a hedged basis, when you take into account just how negative front-end rates are because of the negative ECB rates, it means that the carry is actually much better in Germany than other markets. So we can move around on the bond side, but also clearly we need to look elsewhere as well, and one of those areas has been FX. So for example, one of the risks that we have at the moment um, is around growth in the rest of the world. It's around the risk of potentially inflation rising, um, you know, the Fed acting, you know, that would be something that would hurt our portfolios. And therefore, we've looked at, for example, long dollar trades. And one of the positions which we talked about at the GAC last week was long dollar versus the euro. And bringing that in as a hedge, so looking back to FX as opposed to just bonds as hedges for the portfolio. And a long dollar position would imply that you think the the current environment where growth in the US, although it's slowing, is still looking more robust than growth in Europe and in Asia. Is that a fair? Yes, it is. It's partly about that divergence. Uh, you also have the sort of typical strategic bias of the dollar to work very well in a downside risk environment. Um, but also, and this is a very strange thing, it's very rare for this to happen, you have a, a positive carry argument for the dollar today. If you think because the Federal Reserve has been one of the few major central banks hiking rates, it means the yields on the dollar are higher than other parts around the world. Um, it's very rare for that to happen. So that combination of that defensive cyclicality uh, with high carry, I can't remember the last time you really had that from a major currency. So there's several sort of benefits for the dollar at the moment. And that, that doesn't sound like great news for emerging markets. If there, there are attractions to global investors of going back into the dollar, that tends to be uh, consistent with disappointing returns from emerging markets, equities and debt. Well, the, the first thing to say is we're not calling for a massive you know, dollar rally here. Um, we're seeing it more as a you know, risk if you were to see that deterioration outside the US, at the risk of you know, the Fed actually deciding to hike this year. Um, so it's not like a base case that the dollar is going to significantly strengthen. But clearly, if we were to see a strengthening of the dollar, then it would be a headwind for emerging markets. And given that we have had some positions in emerging markets for some time now, it makes sense to introduce dollars into our portfolios as a hedge against that. But you still have those positions in emerging markets? We do have those positions in emerging markets. Um, I wouldn't say that they were huge positions today, but we do have those positions, yeah. Okay. The, the, the big event... I guess this week is the uh, Federal Reserve meeting the Open Market Committee uh, on Tuesday and Wednesday. What, what should we be looking at for in the statement they release on uh, Wednesday evening? Well, I think there are four things we need to look for at the moment. The first thing that everyone will focus on is the dot plot. Uh, so the expectations of the individual FMC members as to where they think interest rates will be at the end of this year, next year, and the year after. And they reduced this once a quarter, and therefore the last time they produced it was in December, before the sort of volt-fast of, uh, of the Fed to not hiking this year. So at the moment they have two hikes penciled in for this year. What does that get changed to? Does it get dropped to just one hike, or is it removed completely? And it's not just about that median number, but also the more hawkish members of the committee who are looking for greater rate hikes next year and the year after. Are they really tempering those expectations? That's the first thing, dot plot. 
The second, I think, is about language in the FMC statement on the growth outlook. How do they want to characterize that in terms of the risks to growth? Uh, the third thing, you know, very specifically, there's a lot of talk at the moment about the balance sheet. We know that the Federal Reserve has been unwinding its balance sheet. The bonds that it bought as part of its quantitative easing programs have been allowed to mature without being replaced. And so having had the balance sheet peaking it at $4.5 trillion in 2017 when Yellen started the runoff process, it should be down to about $3.5 trillion by the end of this year. And there's expectations or hope that the Fed will provide a timeline for uh, tapering the runoff and stopping it. Are there indications for where they think a sort of fair value is for the balance sheet level? It's clearly much higher today than it was pre-crisis because banks want to hold more liquidity, but what kind of numbers do they have? And then the final thing I think is just in the Q&A, what sort of questions does Jerome Powell, the chairman, get asked? And you know, is he, is he asked some questions on things such as the inflation target? So at the moment, the Fed has a 2% inflation target. Uh, but there's been talk about how that should work. And some members of the FMC have said that if you miss in one year, let's say you undershoot the inflation target, maybe you should overshoot the following year in order to make up for that loss and really show sort of credibility to um, people, to businesses, that the Fed is serious about getting inflation to 2%. On the flip side, there are other members of the FMC that completely disagree. Uh, one of the members, for example, talked about how when he goes shooting, if he misses a deer to the left, then he doesn't intentionally try and shoot to the right next time. Um, so there's a real debate going on. I don't think there'll be anything in the statement, but can Powell get pinned down on that as part of the Q&A? Okay, so a lot of potentially market-moving implications. Yes, very much so. The last thing, um, inevitably perhaps Brexit, uh, situation is possibly even less clear than it was a week or so ago, and we only have 10 days to go before the March 29th date. How do you navigate through such an unpredictable political situation? Well, obviously you take your magic eight ball and you give it a shake and see what comes up. Um, I mean, What's it coming up with today then? <laughs> Come back in 10 days time. Uh, so I think the first thing to say, and we've said this all along the multi-asset team, that we think it's very hard or rather impossible to trade political headlines like this. It's very easy to get sucked into those headlines, um, to get excited about you know, the trials and tribulations of what's going on. But quite frankly, none of us really know because none of the actors know. And so the first thing for us is to make sure we take a step back and really focus on what we do know and what we can influence and thinking about the big you know, macroeconomic events around the world and that sort of view on growth and on markets. And so instead of using those headlines as a way of trying to sort of profit from them with clever trades, for us it's really about trying to find hedges where risk scenarios are a real potential threat to the core baseline views that we have. And that's why, for example, we were short sterling before the, um, before the original EU referendum. Today, if you look at where sterling valuations are, it looks a bit cheaper, obviously. And therefore, in some respects, we're minded more to be adding some sterling to portfolios at the moment. Not dramatically so, because we've seen this move from 126 to 132. But nonetheless, it does seem as though Brexit is moving the direction of kicking the can further down the road, an extension. And in that environment, it sort of supports sterling to a certain extent. So some small sort of you know, changes at the margin, but we're really trying to avoid getting sucked into trading an untradable event. 
And it does look as if the Brexit show is going to run for some time yet before there is any resolution. And I think the Brexit show, the Amsterdam show, is potentially a very good way of describing it. We need to wrap up for today. Uh, let me just pick up a couple of the key points that Phil has made. One is that the view of the Global Asset Allocation Committee last week was to continue to be reasonably constructive on risk assets, but finding value as much in carry assets such as high yield, uh, euro corporates, and some high yielding governments as in equities. And the key judgment behind that is the importance of liquidity and the impact of what central banks are doing, not just in the US, but in other economies as well. And the next signpost for how that's going to pan out will be the the statement and the press conference at the end of the FOMC meeting uh, on Wednesday of this week. So thank you very much again all for listening and thank you, Phil, for sharing your thoughts with us. Thanks very much.